Okay, uh, thank you all for coming and uh, welcome to the second of the Whitechapel Salons on the theme of uh, hope. It's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Professor Richard Sennett here today to um, lead the discussion uh, around hope for this second session. We were delighted to have uh, Gayatri Spivak a couple of months ago for the first uh, of these sessions and we have follow-up ones in um, October and January with Chantal Mouffe and uh, Peter Osborne to come. Um, a couple of housekeeping points, first of all. The toilets are on the left, just outside the door. <laughs> there is beer and wine over there. Uh, the two may be linked, and you're welcome to, um, to pick those up. I'm told the air conditioning is broken, uh, which, is why, which is why we have the windows open. But if at any point you can't hear us, then uh, do feel free to, to shut the windows. Um, it feels like we have a strange movement of the room round to the left, uh, which is clearly to be encouraged, um, but we'll try and bend our, our heads in this uh, direction. Um, I'll just introduce uh, uh, Richard in a moment, and the format for today is that Richard's going to um, talk for around half an hour. Uh, less, uh, yeah. Half an hour or less. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we will simply open it up uh, for discussion, uh, and we'd like these salons to be as uh, informal as they possibly can be, and for people to put across their own ideas about what hope is. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, that we can discuss also. Um, so I'll just introduce uh, Richard very briefly. I'm sure most of you know uh, a good deal about him already. Uh, Richard uh, teaches in both New York and in London, New York University uh, and at uh, the London School of Economics um, in sociology, uh, although in fact, as you'll know, his work covers a, a vast range of different areas. Uh, and he is in many ways that rare thing, a, a genuine contemporary public intellectual. Um, his books include most recently a, a book on craftsmanship, uh, a book on uh, respect uh, in society of inequality, uh, a book on the new cultures of uh, capitalism, uh, as well as uh, a whole series of, of extremely important books on the city, uh, from flesh and stone uh, to the uses of disorder to the fall of public man. Uh, I've also found out, um, just speaking to him 10 minutes ago, that he has worked for Barack Obama. So um, <laughs> I'll leave that perhaps as an opening and, and hand over okay. to you, Richard. Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I thought we should have a talk rather than me quacking at, at, at you. Um, maybe actually I'll start with um, saying something to you about that. I mean, I s started working for Obama with him about, uh, I guess, about 16 months ago. And... and um, Again and again, people here would say to me, if only we had an Obama, you know? And I think in a way that's the wrong way to think about uh, 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 hopefulness, you know? That it requires an extraordinary individual to provide uh, the kind of energy and belief uh, that that creates hopefulness in a society. I mean, he is an extraordinary person. He's not what particularly people in German think, which is somebody who sort of walks on water and then he'll do everything. Uh, but he's a, he's a very unusual leader. But I would say, and this is really what I wanted to talk to you about, that some of the conditions that have made people extremely hopeful in the last six months in the States uh, are beginning to form here as well. 
and the, the possibilities for really profound change, I think, are going to open up in Europe almost in equal measure with whatever happens uh, in uh, the U.S. And um, I guess I have, I want to talk to you about two reasons why I, I believe this. And then since we're in an art gallery, say something about, I really tread on your toes on this, about cultures of, of hope. I think what really, I mean, pushed Americans uh, over the, uh, some kind of, of barrier about becoming hopeful and exiting from a kind of condition of almost mass denial and mass cowardice that marked the lives of most Americans after uh, uh, 9-11 was that the, ironically the, uh, the collapse of capitalism in, in the U.S. What you hear, what we heard on the campaign trail all the time from people was the absolute resolute conviction that the system, the old system, would not be restored, that it was impossible to restore it. All the powers that be at the time during the campaign, uh, Republican rhetoric, like Brown's rhetoric, is all about restoring a kind of ancien regime in capitalism. And what gave me hope, talking to people, including people who we're beginning to be unemployed and, and have remained so, is the notion that the idea of repair is not an idea of returning to the old status quo. And I think there's a reason for, for this, which was that during the ASEAN regime, what happened in the U.S., which young people in particular became very cognizant of, and I think has happened here as well, is that people realized that uh, this was a system that increased inequality and provided very little in the way of self-respect on the job. <coughs> and um, i give you an example of kind of thing in this February. I, I worked a little on um, what's called the, the recovery... It's got some very ridiculous title. You know, one of those politicians' title. It's basically a recovery act to give people more uh, unemployment insurance. And um, it had a little provision in this act which has funds for unemployed people who want to retrain so they don't go back to their own kinds of jobs. And it was oversubscribed by about 14,000%. We thought most people particularly people working creative industries, the city, the American version of the city, uh, financial services, what's called fire, which is real estate and so on, would want those jobs back. And in fact, it's huge. This is not a made-up figure. This oversubscription to this little teeny program by 14,000% was that people wanted out of it. And I think that's a structural feature of the uh, capitalist system, 
it produced a kind of unsustainable way of working for younger people. And it also produced, it's produced all over Europe, uh, as well as in the States, growing amounts of, of, of inequality. So I think the motor driving the... I, I can't say that hopefulness isn't the right quite the right word for this aspect of it. But it's a notion of the kind of refusal of the logic of restoration. You know, is the fact that this was an unsustainable, humanly unsustainable kind of capitalism. Now what makes me hopeful about this as a half-Brit is Again, something that may seem very odd to you, which is the inability of the political system as it's presently con constructed to be able to deal with this basic problem in modern capitalism. <coughs> I think you saw a little sign last month of something that's also happening in the U U.S., which is the collapse of the sort of normal political party system and a kind of reconfiguration into we don't know what yet of something very different. If I had a look into my crystal ball and my crystal ball is always cloudy, always. I always get things wrong. But this one I'm pretty certain about, which is that there won't be two parties in Britain anymore, that the conservatives will have some relation to UKIP, which looks nothing like conservatism. And on our side, that the Green Party, which is what I belong to here, uh, will reconfigure parts of the Labour Party, parts of the Lib Dems, and maybe some of the small socialist parties, that something different will come out. And it may be that we're still subject to these two dominant and, and largely corrupt and senile parties in terms of raw power. But that the energy for politics is going to go into something which addresses the reality of the condition in which people find themselves, which is that the, we have to do something about the, this capitalist system and that people will find political ways to, to invent means to respond to this. I'm going to describe to you the, probably the most hopeful phenomenon in the U.S. about this, which I hope happens in uh, Britain as well. It's the use of the Internet as a political tool, which is, as I've come to understand, something much more profound than simply a way of... Of, um, <laughs> of, um, of raising money. Uh, I'll give you two examples of this. Uh, we, in the campaign in the States, we set up, as just a kind of afterthought, we didn't really know what we were doing, something uh, called uh, the uh, Neighbors Cafe, which is that people who donated to the campaign or even got on the website who had a similar postal code, we asked them if we could let them know 
the postal, you know, the names of other people in the same postal code. Overwhelmingly, people said yes, and they began. Um, some of them used uh, it's not Facebook; it's the other one, MySpace, uh, to get together. And then they began getting together in person. These were people who had never been to a political meeting and would never go to a regular party meeting. Um, it's out of those came the fact that they were sort of web-enabled as groups of people whose only connection to us was that they had gotten on our website or sent us $5, which is about three pounds. Uh, these groups then began to start having a life of their own. They don't have members in the sense that a political party does. They seem to be, as far as we can tell, the last six months since the election, very plastic. So there'll be something that people want to uh, uh, discuss. They'll get a group of people off this website, and they'll get together. And it's had a transforming effect on local politics because if, for instance, say your, your borough wanted to sell, just to pick something out of the air, all of its post offices to somebody locally, you can, within about four hours, organize a, a really large meetings of people who resist this. And the next step in this, which is just emerging now, which is in an organization called moveon.org, you don't have to join it, you can be part of it, is to explore the po possibility of what's called continual referendum. That is that people would use the net as a way to have referendums on issues bypassing professional politicians altogether. Now I just raise this because I think that the intersection of a kind of capitalism that's collapsing with the kind of new technology for politics. This was our experience, that it created in people a sense of agency and of engagement, which looks nothing like belonging to a political party. And it may even generate some forms of power that are effective as what we used to call direct action or sometimes called direct democracy. So that's what I'm hopeful about. Who knows? It may all fail. It doesn't matter. I mean, the thing about being hopeful is uh, not that you have assurances it's going to work out, uh, but that you have some grounds for be adult belief that it's possible to make things change. And I think that's as true in Britain with a crack-up of its political system as it is in the U.S. They're both sclerotic in different ways. Americans are, you know, crazed about moral values, patriotism, and so on. Six months, this kind of craziness lifted. You had a totally different discourse. You've got a highly repressive centralized state in the name of the people. You know, maybe in six months it'll go, and there'll be a left which is, is entirely different. So when he asked me to do this, you know, it was... What was really in my mind is just reflecting about the fact that if somebody had said to me at the beginning of 2008, this would be this radical transformation in the United States, I would have said another one of them, you know? Uh, 
it's all right. It's going to be okay. Uh, but it does happen. And I think the younger, my experience with this has been the younger the people that you deal with on this, both on the side of employment and on the side of politics, I would say the more kind of hard-bitten sense of hope there is. Because they can't simply go back to business as usual. Now, the last thing I wanted to put to you is an issue that here is maybe apropos, except I'm just feeling my way in the dark about this. Don't you think that most of the cultural discourse we've had, this is a horrible way to put this, but don't you think that most of the cultural discourse we've had in the last 20 years about transgression, the kind of mobilization of irony as a strategy in the arts, uh, the notion of distance and disbelief and suspension of belief as a kind of modality of making art is a way of inducing um, passivity in the system and in, in the cultural system. I mean, I wonder if... I, I recently went to the Venice Biennale, which I do not recommend to anyone. <laughs> under no conditions. <laughs> and it's all those familiar tropes, which are tropes based on the notion that there's this fixed and immovable social reality out there, economic reality out there, that you can do nothing about, except manage a sense of distance and make signs of transgression. And I mean, it's full of irony art, you know, uh, everywhere. Uh, and I just wonder if that's sort of behind the curve of what's happening in the political economy and that a kind of another mentality of art making I don't mean that it becomes naive but that it becomes engaged again in a way that is not uh, this distance taking and assuming that the system is a kind of a movable object against which the artist has to take more and more distance. Anyhow, I just throw this out as a thought. So um, that's what I wanted to really say to you. I mean, I guess philosophically, it's, this is, you know, Kierkegaard would have liked to have been alive now because he had this notion of a hope uh, which is not... Uh, corrupted by innocence, you know? That's what either-or is about, which is a kind of resolute hope, which, and it's a wonderful phrase, which isn't corrupted by innocence. And I think we're sort of, that's where we are now, you know? And so somehow in the cultural realm, we've got to respond, respond to that. So anyhow, it's just some thoughts to get a discussion started. Thank you, Richard. That's great. Um, I've got a bunch of questions, but I'll... I'll okay, go you're going to have to shout. Sorry. Just move it up. I'll move it up. Is it all right having the windows open? Air. How's that? Yeah. Is that better? Yeah. <laughs> Let me turn that up a bit. Or just hold it. Okay. 
Oh, there you go. Oh. No, you can take it off. Right, okay. Um, well, I said I have a bunch of questions, but I'm just going to... Um, I suppose I'm just going to ask a question that relates to that last point um, about that change, because do you, do you see any dangers in hope? I mean, is there another side to hope? Because, of course, there is, against something like Kierkegaard's conception, there'd be the kind of argument you characterize against someone like Nietzsche, which is that hope is dangerous because it kind of blunts your critical uh, faculties in relation to the world. And there's, there's a long left tradition, I guess, that feeds into some of the kind of art you're talking about in which hope is regarded with a certain amount of suspicion. I mean, something right. like the, the Frankfurt School, uh, you know, Adorno or the late Mark Cusa around the affirmative culture. That, okay. the hope Let me say it back because it's hard for people to hear you. You have to just... Sorry. <laughs> no, no, just take it off your... Okay. Take it off the label. I should just hold it. Yeah. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm going to repeat that all again then. Um, the, the question was whether Richard saw any dangers in hope because there, there is, of course, a contrary left tradition. If one tradition of the left is uh, that hope is absolutely necessary to progressive politics and so on, there's also a tradition where hope is regarded with a certain amount of suspicion as something which blunts one's uh, critical faculties or one's um, revolutionary energies, or that hope operates as a kind of um, a compensation, a kind of compensatory culture, or a, a version of what Herbert Marcuse called an affirmative culture. Um, that in a sense, that if, if we hope, if we have hope, it, it, it buys us into uh, systems in ways that we're unaware of. Yeah, I have a lot of trouble with that in a very different way. Um, and maybe this comes out of the fact that the art that I have is a performer's art. And um, in which the issue of being tricked, being repressed, you know, by believing something that is false, you know, falling under hegemonic power, these are really irrelevant to what a musician or a dancer would do. I mean, you cannot improve as a performer of any sort without the hope that you can get better. I mean, it's, it's simply not on. Uh, the notion that standard, quality standards, uh, might be a kind of hegemonic domination which is going to enslave you, uh, are kind of recipes for uh, disempowerment. And in the performing arts, at least, um, you know, f I had to do this when I fought with my cello teachers. You know, they'd say, do it my way, and you'd say, no, it's terrible. And the space is there to do that simply because the whole notion of Competition and improvement are sort of inseparable. And the thing that always surprised me about Adorno was that he should have known better as a musician. I mean, he was a musician of true, of very limited gifts. But he, no, he was. I mean, he played the piano very badly. He was very undisciplined. His own composition is, you know, is neither here nor there. But he is somebody who knew this other world. And um, 
you remind me, I'm sorry, you just made me skitter off into this. I remember asking William Kentridge, you know who that is, uh, the video artist from South Africa, about, we were talking about, we had thought at one point we were going to do a project together. And I said to him, well, how are we going to improve? And he said, well, we have to hope that we can learn from this collaboration from each other. And if we don't have that belief, the project will be absolutely static. And for various reasons, the project didn't happen. But I'd say that most performing musicians would find this a kind of non-starter. It's a recipe for, for being immobilized. And the question is, why maybe in the visual arts we took this on? Or you took it on. Not you. <laughs> one, one took this on. The notion that somehow this kind of Nietzschean uh, bulwark uh, was a recipe for creativity. You know? with, I mean, it works very oddly in performing arts. With a little kid, if you say to them... Um, Gee, that sounds great. That's actually less encouraging than saying, hmm, I'm not convinced. You know, you have to do it in the right kind of way. But the notion is that there's something that they haven't yet done that they could done, that they could do. And that, there is a hope in that. And every, every single performing art depends on it. I'm sorry, it's a very long-winded answer to a question you didn't really ask me, but it's why I'm suspicious about this. And I, I'm really suspicious about the kind of cultural dialectics of the Frankfurt School. What's really at the base of it is a fear of seduction by mass media. Yeah. You know? And the answer is use your judgment, you know? I mean, I anyhow. I suppose the political analogue is whether it's an, it's an argument that goes right back to you know, Marx in the 1840s, which would be whether hope slips into a kind of, necessarily into a kind of utopianism. Sit here if it's too noisy. Yeah, it's noisy. Sit here. It's, it's whether uh, hope inevitably slips into a kind of utopianism, which then militates against the kind of hard work of the here and now, as it were, in, in Marx's term. So Marx and Engels' critique of uh, utopian socialists in the 19th century is partly a sense that they're too hopeful, they have too strong an object of hope, I guess. Well, then the question is, how do people have will without hope? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to throw it open at this point. Yeah. Shout. Okay, I'm a psychiatrist and um, I was just thinking about hopefulness uh-huh. in terms of um, my day to day work. When we see patients, for example, with Ray and E, and we're thinking they might have depression, um, we always ask about hopefulness. Do you feel hopeful? And the ones who say no and look like they mean no can do nothing. You have Strong pointed towards the illness. That's just a slightly different skill. 
But it's interesting, isn't it? Because would, you'd make a distinction between mourning and melancholy, right? And yeah. melancholy would be a static state of hopelessness. Yeah. Right. Right. It's an experience of of loss, yeah. rather but than. But you can't identify the loss necessarily so easily in a melancholic illness. Right. Well, maybe what these young people that I've described to you are have experienced is a kind of process of mourning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now they're emerging from it. That's why it's often helpful to watch the waves sometimes in certain degrees because people sometimes do pass through it but it often comes back. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. More thoughts? That's really interesting. I, I don't know is my own answer to that. But your idea about this would be that people have to... I mean, it's the notion of recognizing... goes back to what we were just talking about. That something has to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a kind... I don't know if you describe it as hopefulness, although it does give people an enormous amount of energy. And maybe that's a difference between what we're talking about and where the depression would come in, where there is no energy, right? Um, I mean, what really surprised me in this long journey that, of this campaign was, uh, and I, I think in a way it really had little to do with Barack. That people simply, they wanted, they simply didn't want to be sunk in this horrible condition which America had sunk them into. I don't mean they were anti-American. They didn't want to live more of their lives the way they'd lived them before. And I suppose you'd say that's a kind of process of mourning in which the transitional object is power. Right, which can be addressed. I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I, I've just been reading Freud on Morning and Melancholia, which is it's a most wonderful essay. And that again is outside this whole you know Frankfurt School business, which is basically how not to get conned, taken in. It's a very petty bourgeois notion isn't it? You want something of value. Yeah. You guard against being seduced. 
You guard against, right. You, uh, right. Uh, and heaven forbid that you actually believe in something that doesn't work out. Now, I mean, it could, of course, I mean, this sensible argument about this is that they're writing in the Nazi times and communist times and all of that. And to them, what this looks like is, as it looks to Orwell, as though people are infinitely seducible. But that may be really an intellectual's fear. There's some difference, though, isn't there, perhaps, between the kind of arguments that you're making. Shout. Ah, here is a microphone. So we can have both air and sound. This is good. (laughs) It's yeah. good. I must admit, I've always been mystified by this fetishization of hope. I mean, we do it. We might fetishize breathing. It's like, yeah. Nobody's going to change anything unless they breathe. That's true. Nobody is going to change yeah. anything unless they breathe. But they could be breathing and they could be fascists. Equally, you could be hopeful and you could be a fascist. Of course. So, this is what a, a condition. Right. In Latin America. And as somebody who's spent what part of the last 20 or 30 years of my life on the left, um, I'm delighted, of course, and very hopeful when I see all the things that we were saying 20 or 30 years ago being said anew in Latin America. But I also kind of raises questions in my mind should I be that hopeful? I mean, have they got it right? Did we get it wrong? Did we just run out of energy, or did we actually get the analysis wrong, or did we fail to communicate with people? I'm particularly tempted towards that third option, actually. We were remarkably bad at communicating. I mean, I heard David Harvey, for whom I have a, a lot of admiration. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Recently saying, you know, with the kind of anger that I share about uh-huh. all the people who sold out. But I asked, I, I had to say to David, look, okay, a lot of people sold out, but did those of us who didn't sell out actually succeed in communicating an analysis uh, to a larger number of people that would have taken us through this crisis? And I think the answer to that is no, we didn't. So the question then is, once you've got hope, you've got to have an analysis that is, is viable. Now, just finally, to finish on Latin America, of course, the big worry... I mean, I was very excited. Very early, there was a documentary about the takeover of five factories in Venezuela. Yeah. As you know, it's very exciting occasionally to see all these people at various levels of factory talking about their hope of how a factory once again became a unit of action. You know, everybody, and they made, and I didn't think they were carefully chosen. You know, everybody saying, we know what we're working for, the money doesn't matter so much provided we're working, etc., etc., etc. I then wonder where the intellectual energy would come from this. And there was one, undoubtedly one ideologue who kind of appeared from time to time. And then the only name I eventually heard was Ivan Metzoros, 
course, the, the guy, the postman of Pachin. Again, what I think is actually quite a hopeful intellectual. But the question is... Now, well, the final question, sorry, and then I am changing, is, you know, the worry, which we haven't touched on yet, that all this, in many cases, is based on oil. In other words, it's based on finite resources. What happens when the finite resources are right. Now, recently, I've heard some American intellectuals who are very excited um, by Morales, not just because he was a former llama leader, but because he's actually talking, he's actually arguing that nature has rights, which, first of all, is divorced. As a right, region. right. So, but what I'm saying is, if you're going to put together, yeah, hope is an ingredient, an essential ingredient in change, but it's certainly not a sufficient condition. And what we need to do is to enumerate what the other conditions are if we really think we're going to choose something. Well, that's, here's what I'd say to you about that. I, um, I, I think that's, I think you're on the Kierkegaardian track. The innocence is that hope in itself will produce good. That's innocent. But I don't think it's simply a kind of uh, quality of, of uh, a psychological quality or, or, or sort of an ingredient of energy. I think it's more complicated than that. When I, th and this may be a difference between us in, in say, between politics and sociology. I've often uh, been amazed and for a long time been interested in how people navigate uh, migration and exile. And it's a, this is something as a sociologist I've followed a, a lot in my life. And uh, the sheer desire to survive uh, is a wildly insufficient answer to it. What seems to be the case, and we're just about to publish a study of Korean migrants to the U.S., uh, particularly New York, is that people are able to contrive a narrative that connects up past sufferings, displacement, oftentimes hideous present conditions with a story about what could happen in the next generation. And that narrative, oftentimes quite unrealistic, becomes a template for or orientating their behavior. And um, the structure of the narrative is what determines what could be called hopefulness. I, I give you an example of this. There's a great drama in immigrant communities about um, whether the children of immigrants are going to redeem the sacrifices of their parents. It's an unholy contract because the children are meant to make it worthwhile for a lifetime of sacrifice. Korean community, that means the children all become engineers. They all go to MIT or something like that. And if the children want to do something else, that is, if the very fact 
that they get a toehold in a foreign culture means that they begin thinking of something other than what the parents want. There's a profound feeling of betrayal and a sense of hopelessness because the story was orientated to a certain kind of denouement. And when you work with immigrant communities, the politics of working this out is working out that the end of the story of the narrative is open-ended. Now, that's a political activity set in a very different kind of context than one you're talking about. But it's one in which the framing of a narrative and the capacity to be realistically hopeful are insoluble. And I think this is true of a lot of sociological situations. Uh, Again, take phenomenon like exchange. When you have people who who shouldn't distrust each other, diplomats representing opposite sides, you need to create a domain of trust between them So, because the task they have is not to let things spiral off into violence. They have no reason to trust each other's words, but their exchanges create a domain of trust. If they don't have hope that their skills in negotiation with each other are sufficient to, to create that domain, the process of controlling violence collapses. So, I mean, that's a kind of function, again, quite different. This is about exchange rather than narrative. But it's where the process of hope is more than simply something that has to do with, you know, putting a little ingredient of a smiley, you know, into a situation. It's about organizing social action. But it's of a very different sort. Yeah, let me say generational idea, yeah, a generational sort of Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Um, yeah. And I, I'm not sure whether our generation, certainly some of my colleagues, you know, whether they are actually able to feed that, to enable these, you know, students to develop their narratives, to actually, you know, find the right kind of format for the hope being more than a yeah. smiley face. And so it's about teaching, it's about generation, the diff, you know, sort of the reverse of the, the constellation that you've described on some level. And the cynicism, or perhaps you know, that being distant and ironic, that for the last 20 years has perhaps dominated discourses, and including certain areas of teaching in architecture, perhaps elsewhere as well. Yeah. Um, that, that is kind of with us still, and I, I see that a lot of you know that, that there is some kind of dimension lacking where, where, where actually sort of younger people are being enabled to make the most of the hope. Yeah. I, I don't know whether anybody else. Here, maybe Teaching environments have experienced similar things. 
I wasn't going to speak as a, as a younger person, certainly. Uh, Raise I, that microphone. I wanted to... Uh, <laughs> well, I just wanted to... Uh, in a way, it's a question, I suppose, for both of you, which is a, a, a question about narrative here. And, and if we're talking about hope, to what degree you need some kind of determinate future object of that narrative? You know, to, to what degree does, does hope rely upon having some idea of what you're being hopeful for, you know, and what that object is? And uh, this seems to be interesting in, in a number of ways. I mean, one is obviously to do with the discourse surrounding Obama, because one of the critiques, obviously, on a lot of the left was, yeah, okay, there's a lot of talk about change, there's a lot of talk about hope, but for what? Change yeah. to what? Hope for what? Um, and this has obviously been a long-standing part of what people have referred to as the crisis of the left since the 80s, you know, when those older narrative horizons of uh, certain ideas of, of, of state socialism or, or, or communism disappeared, what was, what was going to replace them. And it, it does seem to be that there is an interesting issue here around how empty or indeterminate that object of hope can be. I mean, and it, it's, it's very obviously... Um, manifested in, in, in the slogan of anti-globalization as another world is possible, which is a kind of you know, a, a statement of hope. But the, the question is then, what, what world? You know, okay, another world is possible, but then, well, what is, the, what is this world then one is hoping for through this, this possibility? Which is perhaps just a way of saying I'm a cynical old teacher. I don't know. But uh, it's, it's not, it's not it's, I think it's a question of cynicism. It's a question of, you know, to what degree can you renew hope? As is, as is clearly in some sense happening in the face of both an environmental crisis and a certain crisis of capitalism without don't, ultimately... Don't you think that maybe the issue is what you're hopeful about is either something that's a kind of political project or you're hopeful about something which is a more kind of civil society process Again, I mean, this is just, you know, my, my um, impression from, from this e exposure to this campaign uh, uh, experience. But I would say that very few of the young people that we encountered actually had any political ideology of any sort. Zero. And when we went into working class, lower middle class, communities. You know, American young people are very, very ill-educated. They don't read books. They don't read newspapers. Uh, they get most of their news from blogs if, the, if they attend at all. They're not. They're politically illiterate. But the, the, um, the energy that was there and the, the hopefulness I would say would be, even with these kids who have been severely deprived, because it's not their fault, I mean, they've been deprived by society, is about something that is a civil society social process. Uh, that, for instance, on the, on the environmental thing, that even if the politicians are hopeless, it's possible to do something about your own behavior, the behavior of people around you in a local community using this, this, these blogs and these tools that we develop, uh, that you might do something that, as a, as in terms of your own life experience, you've changed. If that's the case, I mean, it's something that I've, I've long sort of wondered about. 
whether you know we all we always talk about social democracy when we imagine that that this is a political project rather than the social and social democracy being what it's really about and so maybe that's why I mean maybe what people are hopeful about is on this more experiential and social side um, and don't you have a little that sense that that's what's happening in Britain now too the young people who are engaged they're not engaged in labor party policy they're utter contempt for policy wonks no? yeah End by addressing Shout. That. Yeah. So I'll finish by addressing that last thing you said, but I want to start by um, addressing David's last question regarding um, what the nature of goals might be. And I just wonder whether the generation which I'd like to exclude myself from, but I guess I'm part of, um, so the cynical generation, is actually lumbered with um, a kind of idea of goals being either teleological things, like something you've got to aim for, but we've actually had this whole cynical culture which has repeatedly told us that that's actually highly problematic and correctly so. And so we've ended up with both you know, teleology or, or, or the opposite of that, providing no route out of this problem. So I think that's kind of what you're describing in a sense. Though. And I wonder whether if you look at um, things like cybernetic systems and ecological systems, there's actually a very different model Right. which is a kind of autopoetic model <coughs> systems are future oriented and are determining goals without their actually being uh, they're, not, they're non-teleological they're completely outside of that logic so the goal they aim towards is, is completely contingent upon what they're coupled to at any given moment so it's, it's a full progression and it's kind of permanently goal setting if you like but it's not a permanent goal that's being aimed at it's a non-teleological and it seems to me that that's the kind of thing which is, um, you know, you might sort of say, well, that, that's the kind of thing which is starting to emerge in the potential societies which are forming around, um, you know, Web 2 technologies and so on, that there is um, an obvious possibility of, of, of just creating forward momentum without there being a fixed goal. And I think as soon as people immerse themselves and, 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 and when cultures are immersed in that, people do have a sense of that, of, of just auto-generating immediate goals of there being a, a forward momentum without it being... Can I, can I just ask a like, question? Yes. Yeah. How do you know you're going forward? Well, this is, this is a very interesting question, but the way in which, again, this is not a problem, but the way in which ecological systems work is it's basically um, robustness. It's, it's always comes down to diversity. And I actually wonder whether it's dangerous to just get yeah, transposing this obvious cost. But generally speaking, whenever there's an increase in diversity, an increase in the range of niches being filled up, the geographic system, this, isn't, this, this can be measured very directly. It's about you know, slowing the energy flow through, through an ecosystem. Yeah, you fill up more and more niches. And I kind of wonder whether there's actually a, 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 a kind of social equivalent to that. And so you basically, there's a series of autocratic systems that couple together structurally in all kinds of ways and they move towards ecologically slowing down energy you know, dissipation, slowing down entropy basically. But whether there's um, yeah, but I think 
Yeah, he's quite in, yeah. interested in, yeah. in, in that. Um, just, just, just coincidentally, this morning I was in another lecture, and I can't for, for the hell of it not remember who, whom the, the, the lecturer referred to, um, but she talked about um, a commentary, she read out a commentary on Seattle, um, where the commentator was very dismissive of Seattle and saying they didn't, you know, they, they didn't know what they were standing for. They have no idea why they were there. They were just sort of this big mass, seizing mass of people with some sort of agenda. This is who? Seattle. The, the, a few years back, the big first Seattle anti-globalization. Oh, 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 yeah. And then there was another comment, which I think she took from an article uh, by Agamben on Tiananmen Square from a while back, where, where Agamben argued that... Um, the, the fierce response of the regime against the students was actually due to the fact that there was no, nothing to negotiate about. They didn't, have re, they, they didn't ask for anything. They had one initial request for some student leader being freed from jail. But after that, there was actually no negotiation mass, which was a very threatening thing. So there was just this kind of, you know, sort of, you know, not swarm behavior, but kind of, you know, sort of just this upsurge in, 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 you know, going somewhere, but nobody knew where. So Yes, and that would fit into the issue about narrative too, because a closed narrative is a narrative without energy. It's it's the parallel to a a system which is about to shut down. Um, But I mean, I just wonder if what this isn't about is that. What you describe about Tiananmen is, I would say, the experience I had with these kids, you know, for a year, which is they really didn't know what they wanted. That wasn't the point. The point was they were rejecting a kind of cynical passivity. And uh, whatever happened, you know, they were going to stay with it. And Maybe they'll lose that energy. Who knows? But I think for us, the, the challenge of that is freeing ourselves from the notion, will it work? You know? When I did my book on craftsmanship, um, one of the things, I, I really write about this well in that volume, that struck me, is that a really good craftsman never asks that question in any serious way. Because they'll always, the belief is always, it doesn't matter, let's see what we can do about it. Nobody says, I'm not going to touch this, it'll never work. Or rather, only really mediocre people do that. So, you know, maybe with the shift in this, and again, I mean, this is part of the inculcation of new labor, it's a, as, which I think historians are going to look back and look at as a kind of political movement that's most clever about was inducing passivity, which was to make will it work uh, a kind of primary question. And if there was any chance it wouldn't work, to not do it, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Musical training seems to suggest that hope is a reciprocal sacrifice. You make a sacrifice in the hope that you'll get better. Of course. Your position will improve. 
classic structure of capitalism. Isn't hope really just an expected return on investment? You... <laughs> Gosh, if only that were true in music. Uh... And isn't therefore a hope to live in a world without hope? Not despair, just you work without hope. Well, I would say for, I mean, to take the serious part of this with the Korean, with the, the Korean uh, families, I'll tell you what, who we followed, by the way. We followed 66 Korean grocers in New York. And Korean grocers in New York are the equivalent to people from Pakistan who opened those 24-hour shops in London where you could finally buy a pack of cigarettes at midnight. It's sort of wonderful. Um, the sacrifice isn't the beginning of the story for them. They are displaced. Many of them are downwardly mobile. They didn't choose to move. They weren't entrepreneurial in that sense. Uh, Korea had, uh, like Iran, had a, a, a very dictatorial regime. And the... Um, if you like, hopefulness of leaving was that simply would be intolerable to stay anymore. Many of them were middle-class people who were downwardly mobile. So it isn't that they're saying of their children, you owe me, which would be a capitalist transaction. It's a much more complicated phenomenon. It's that a sacrifice has occurred, a wound has happened, and they, in some way, want some sort of restitution for that. Something like that. And what happens usually in these families is that there's a whole negotiation with particularly with the most talented children, the ones who do wind up at MIT or would wind up uh, here in, in Oxford or Cambridge, about whether the children can actually do that for their parents. So, you know, your model is a little off. It doesn't really, because it's a narrative, and the narrative is constantly being built but an essential dramatic element in the narrative is that the children may not make it all right for their parents' sufferings, that nothing could do this. This is a very familiar story in the families of Holocaust survivors as well. And um, that they have to work out a second time that the event, the displacement, was something which they survived, but there can be no amends for. So I would say our model on the social side is not very realistic. On the musical side, maybe it is more capitalistic. Uh, uh, that is, you are knocking yourself out. I, I happen to have been quite talented as a little boy, didn't have much I would never play games because of my precious hands and all of that. There are sacrifices. You're at work four or five hours a day when other kids are, are loafing about and so on. 
The problem is it never felt, once I really got into it, like a sacrifice. It felt that way when I was a neophyte. But by the time that uh, I got in, and this is true of dancers, most musicians as well, when you re- reach a certain level of proficiency, you're interested in your own pro- process of learning. You don't, have, you don't have a kind of trade-off. I wanted to go out and play ball and be just like everybody else in exchange for, and tomorrow I'll play the second movement of the Dvorak cello concerto. You know? At a certain point, it's just sort of interesting and satisfying in itself. But I would agree that with little kids, it does have some of that capitalist quality. You know, you but get like... When you reach that you don't need hope, you just Oh no, you need a great, you have to hope that you are capable of improving. And in most, and I'll be very specific to you about that. What happens with most musicians is what's called plateau learning. Um, and we can mark out how those plateaus are. For instance, the, I don't, yeah. there's a plateau that's reached in holding the bow like this. It takes about two years to do this. I, I mean, I'm feeling everything in my hand. And then, at a certain point, I'll jump that plateau and be able to do this, which is how... So we're constantly making steps like that. You can do that everything in the body, and it's also true uh, in terms of expression, too. The hopefulness when you're in the plateau is that you can go up because you can get very easily stuck in this without knowing you're going to be able to do that. So there's a whole, it's an overused word, but there's a whole narrative of how technique involves this hopelessness because you are always stuck for a while. What you don't have is linear progression. This is a fantasy of, I don't know, Blairism or whatever, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. And, and, so, and it's true artistically, too. We only go up in sudden ways, and often by accident. Um, So, no, I wouldn't throw out his theme of hopefulness. I, I mean, I think it's, it's a reality. I think the issue that's sort of emerging in this is hopefulness about what? And maybe what we're seeing as a kind of cultural divide now is a kind of hopefulness about social relationship and about kind of ontological relations with each other rather than politics. Does that make sense? You know, it's a different kind of... Well, it's sort of beyond politics in a way rather than before it. It's a function of a non-cynical art. Chart. A function of a non-cynical ask the questions that make people hopeful to express an object in the art to... What do you think? Well, I think it's to ask the questions that make people hopeful to express an object in the art. Well, I think it's to 
my despair about contemporary literature, which is yeah. literature is the field that I work in, is that it largely fails to engage with the contemporary at all. That it is not about living now, that it's about it's taken up by the past, it's historical fiction of certain sorts, it's it's the terrible examples of, you know, take an episode from the nineteenth century, take one from the present, make them look like, you know, human nature never changes, all of those kinds of things. That that the that an engagement with what goes on now seems to me to be very limited in right. the literary field, the art and that's interesting. So you don't feel, I mean, I don't know, I, I barely read, so. Ill-educated <laughs> uh, American. Uh, Ill-educated American, compounded by a conservatory in which I don't, I don't, the only books were uh, Schoenberg's Harmony Lair and things like that. But do you think that this is an excess of a kind of historical self-consciousness? Interesting. Art has as well, because interestingly, I think, and this is interesting in relation to what David was saying earlier in the discussion about the Frankfurt yeah. School, that where there is engagement and where there is political engagement with the present is in what used to be thought of as genre fiction. That I think one of the best commentators on contemporary American politics is James Elroy, you know, a detective story writer. Yeah. Much more so than than many of the others that would be presented, essentially a kind of middle-brow writer, the ones that are retreating from. But you're framing this, in a way, as the issue of that what culture would do is just say what social life would do, which is connect with its public. Right, and I wonder if I, I just, it's just a question whether that's the problem. I mean, whether the issue is somehow that what the public is experiencing is something that the artist doesn't understand. I'll give you a, a visual example of this. Um, and again, this is something that when I worked on this project, I was quite struck by, that a lot of video artists feel that their audience is as sophisticated, if not more sophisticated visually, than they are about technology. Uh, and that's a quite a rum go. That is, rather than the, the artist, like Kentridge, saying you know, I have more expressive power than you do, and I'm going to let you into my world, or let's talk. That, you know, especially with young people, they, this, somehow it's almost genetic that they understand this machinery, which he doesn't, video machinery. So that's quite a different problem. And that, in his case, 
uh, this is what he feels, and many video artists feel this too, that they've been so seduced by painting as a kind of standard for what they would do that they haven't been techie enough rather than been too techie. They, you know, they've taken an old model and that their public is going to take them out, out of this groove. That's quite a different relationship of the artist to the audience. Uh, you know, 18th century theater, there was the same, same thing. You know this a system called points and settling? Do you know what this is? It's a great thing in the 18th century English and French theater. The audience knew most of the plays it saw on stage so well that it could repeat the lines. And if it didn't think an actress or an actor was doing very well, it would mouth the lines out with them uh, as, as well, as a, as a criticism. Um, and if they, uh, the point in settling was a kind of, you know, the audience is already empowered. But what I hear you saying is that the artist hasn't, or maybe I'm hearing you wrong, that this empowered artist has to reach out to a disempowered audience? I suppose I was trying to pick up what you were saying about cynicism and art, because ah. an opposite, you might think, of cynicism would be engagement of some kind in which you don't stand back from... That Let's reformat it. How about the, using the word knowingness? Does that get us any farther in this? The opposite of knowing... We all know what knowing art is, right? And it should drive most of us insane, right? The wink, wink art, you know? So what's the opposite of that? Is it hope? It's certainly naivete. It's not... Uh, Schiller's naive and sentimental arts. What's the opposite of knowingness in art? Uh, so isn't the problem that the kind of art and the kind of cultural criticism which is tending to present capitalism as this total untouchable object? And so the, the kind of challenge to that is just things which seem to make it or, or seem to suggest empowerment in various ways. No, I think she's talking about something else. She's talking about... Yeah. But, I mean, if the, if the idea is to find some way to express the opposite of cynicism or knowingness, because it's the same thing, maybe in the cultural domain you've You've led us astray with the word hope, but there's something like it, which is a capacity to believe. But that's what you would say, engagement. Or believe, is it ritual? I mean, when you engage in a ritual, all performing is a ritual, certainly. You're self-conscious on stage, it's over. You know? Uh, So what is it? That's the, let's scratch hope for a second. What's the opposite of cynicism and knowingness? Open-mindedness. Open-mindedness. 
about um, in literature you were saying that lots of um, writers are looking back maybe we are on one of those plateaus that you were talking about and we just need to take stock and we look back and gather ideas for the future and learn lessons maybe that's where we're at and we're about to go up again right I think I don't know I mean I don't know what you th- I, th- I, think, I think it's probably slightly different in literature in my sense is that the kind of knowing art that you're talking about does seem very much a property of the visual Arts, I think it does. Um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't have a direct equivalent in the kind of I don't like the word middlebrow, but middlebrow fiction. That I guess you're mainly talking about. But I, I think what they perhaps do have in common is that they engage their audience in a way that confirms for that audience what they think they already know. So in the knowing art, it, it, it kind of flatters uh-huh. the, the onlooker who says, "Oh, I, I know this as well," you know, and so uh, I get the wink. You know, whereas in the Middlebrow fiction, it's not quite the same, but it is also a sense of flattery of when I read a book about the 19th, a novel about the 19th century, and oh, I know how these things work, and you know, uh, this confirms what I think about human nature and so on. So right. it doesn't challenge you in that way, and it's not really set up to challenge, even though all the, the discourse is about transgression. Actually, the person, the onlooker, by and large, is not meant to feel that transgression. They're, they're meant to know that it's transgressive, and so therefore then nothing's really being transgressed. Do you see what I mean? Um, right. So, in other words, in terms, it requires an audience who feels it's static because there's nothing problematic yeah. or open-minded. The work of art is not an exploration. Yeah. Right? It's, it's closed in that sense, and it's confirming so that the knowingness, the the cunning, all of that is um, is in and of course it's got, that's got a class character too, doesn't yeah. it? We're the elect, unlike these schmucks who, who don't get it. Um, well, that's what I, I must say, that's what I felt at the Biennale. It's full of wink art, you know? So maybe, and I would say the alternative to that is a kind of hopelessness, a hopefulness. I don't, I don't know quite what the word is, but there is a kind of hopefulness about the project of making art, which isn't winking, you know, being one of the cognoscenti, one of your avant-garde. You don't care about that anymore, you know. I suppose it, is it a question of how hope links to other, in something like art, is how it links to other terrains of life, just to, to, to social movements and forms. So that if you think about some of like the history of the avant-garde um, and particularly things like the Russian avant-gardes in the, the 20s which are the most extraordinary the hopeful projects envisioning these amazing futures and so on but, but it's linked of course to social and political movements it has something to, to, to grasp onto outside of art it, it itself um, whereas when you think about someone like Adorno writing in the 50s, he's writing in a context where art seems very much alienated from social and political forms. Yeah. You know, it seems removed to the museum and to the academy, and you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to connect with Well, maybe places itself. like this, institutions like this, are just the wrong way, the wrong place. Maybe we should shut it down. 
you know, that this is just the wrong kind of institution, sorry, uh, to get that kind, to get the kind of parallel change that is occurring. It's not whether it'll occur. It is occurring now in the political economy. Maybe museums are irrelevant to that. Maybe we need a different kind of cultural form uh, which does that. I mean, when I think about this, again, in terms of performing, uh, a watershed for most performers was to break the code of silence on stage. That is to go out and play, uh, give a concert of Bartok quartets, and talk about them with the audience. And the reason it broke a whole concert tradition, it changed the way we wanted to use theaters, thrust stages are much better for that, so you can, you know, like this talk, brought the audience much closer, they ask questions. Normally that was all supposed to break your concentration. It's a profoundly transforming event, so that the institution that did that, it gets, young people love it. You can play any, anything to them if you talk to them about it, anything. Uh, it's just amazing uh, because they're outside this kind of an envelope. Uh, maybe in the visual arts and maybe somehow in literature is stuck in the equivalent of a museum gallery-like in institution which prevents that sociability. What about the bande dessinée? What did you say that in English? The cartoon Maybe that steps outside it. Hello. Some? Oh dear. Shout. Shout or talk loud. <laughs> it seems to me that there's a lot of talk of like linear progression. That there's almost like a self-knowing, like we, we know everything about the past in this, as opposed to um, Seeing it almost as like a sorry, like a linear progression that you're kind of uh, we know everything about the past, so therefore hope is not something that can be associated with the past. It is something right. that needs to be associated with the future, um, which to me seems quite restrictive in many ways. Um, does anyone have any? That's really interesting. That? Like I don't know. Say more. In other words, museum, why look so. at hope as prospective? Well, it, yeah, I, I work in a museum, future. so we're, we're constantly trying to s still understand the past, and that is a very positive thing for us to do, as opposed to it's still moving forwards, but you're still you're exploring the past as a way of moving forwards. So I, I don't know if this discussion is, is, is going down a road where we're, we're simply we're being quite narrow in the way that we're, we're discussing hope. As something that is projected forward. No, no, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. So what you're talking about is, is, but again, it's that kind of problematic thing you don't understand. And once you have it, whatever time frame it's set in, once it's a problematic thing, then you engage. You have hope about something rather than irony, knowingness, the wink, all, all of that. 
but I, I think it's a really, socially, I think it's a really important comment. Because we always associate hope with progress. Right. Um, or, or or investigation. Yes. Uh, hence, looking at the past as well to to perhaps also understand our own future, and that can be within the social context, but also within art. Um, if you're making something, um, you have to have some narrative, you have to have some, some story there to connect to. Um, and perhaps the wink art is disengaging because it's so knowing. Right. So, the, say it again. Just say it again. I, wanna, I don't... I understand um, what you're saying. I'll get so there. my thought was slow, about so. uh, knowingness being uh, the opposite to knowingness being questioning and, 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 as you said, investigation. And as you were saying over there about working with the past, I mean, I, I originally was thinking about this uh, as we were talking about um, hope. It seemed as if we were just talking about hope as something of the future, as a... As a Right, that's what he's saying. Leading to the future. And, and so when you mentioned this, it, it, it struck me because, it, of course, you know, it's sort of obvious once you said it that it, there has to be connection with the past. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and looking down at all this <laughs> rubble of experience. And, and, yeah. and Winkar, as you were saying, and, and it is rather annoying. I, I, if I can connect, I'm, I'm not sure yeah. exactly what you mean, but I, certainly there's, there is art that, that perhaps does disengage, that I, can, I can't think of anything specific, but that um, just goes over your head as well. And it's sort of like, yeah. oh, it's knowing, so therefore you don't belong to this world. You can't connect with this world because this art is exclusive um, it's knowing, but you don't know. Right. What it, what it well, I mean, what? No, I think that make, makes a group, and I, I don't think so. I think it's um, just about feeling cut off from whatever art is being presented, and it, it, um, you're talking about also bringing in. Um, the youth, younger people, and um, how can they connect? So again, it's not really elitism. I think that it's um, in, uh, another word that came up was engagement, and um, and that's involving. Um, yeah. Do you think? I mean. Maybe this whole problem that it's, as I said, I just I raise it with you, I don't know what the answer to it is. That somehow, um, that what's happened in, the, in culture, in, and particularly in 
maybe literature and some forms of performing arts, is that it suffered a kind of crisis of trust. Not of hope, but of trust. Uh, and that I always felt that about, I mean, I, I grew up in the Warhol generation, and uh, it was, you know, it was, you, you know, he made irony into a billion dollar business, and it was a whole art scene, and a lot of the actual art produced, which aimed to erode trust, trust in the object. Uh, you know, suddenly Duchamp, you know, became this supersized icon and all of that. And I'm just wondering if maybe that's, maybe you should change the theme of these things <laughs> and talk about trust. Because maybe that's really the cultural problem, you know? Well, some of it would be trust in the audience, and some of it would be trust in the experience that people are having uh, as something that has a value in and of itself. I'm not quite sure what I mean, but I... What? Trust of integrity. Well, but that, who knows what integrity Well, yeah. But what, I mean, with the Frankfurt School, what they would argue is that in order to have integrity in the object, it has to be preserved from mass culture, which means it has to be in this adversarial relationship to mass culture. So basically the problem there is distrust very subtly articulated, but emotionally quite crude. Does it make sense? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I'm just I thinking out loud. And I'm also <laughs> fading. So can we can we come to a, a an, an, and but I think this I think that just I think we should we shouldn't lose this thought because the notion that in this mistaken theme that he chose, the hope theme. She should have chosen it. Uh, the notion of forward orientation, that, that it requires future thinking, is, is misleading. I think this is an important thing. Sorry. Yeah. Two more comments, which, which you may or may not choose to engage with, but we'll have literary comment, which maybe you guys know, you certainly know a lot more about than I, but um, maybe the term inhabitation or the possibility of inhabitation is an interesting one. Um, oh, yeah. I'm referring to Michael Bell, is that somebody you know? And he's, he's, he's writing about myth in the avant-garde, and you know, people like Eliot and, and, and C.H. Lawrence and so on, so on, Joyce, you know, where, the, where he talks about sort of the construction of, of, of consciously relative worldviews, but which can be inhabited as myths, 
and not as a kind of, you know, sort of obscurant, obscurantist myth or seductive myth, but as a kind of sort of enabling place that can be inhabited and where narrative can actually sort of, you know, evolve within. And I find that a very interesting model and it's kind of half, I, I, I see you frowning and I was expecting that, but... Well, no, but it's, it's um, interesting. But I think it's narrative, this need for narrative and, and for worldview, perhaps. Well, I, just, I was going to bring those two points together with Richard's last point as well, and to ask the question of if there's a problematic relationship here between trust and authority, because the, the, the question is always going to be, well, if it's a question of a trust between the artist and the audience, say, that is also always some kind of relationship of, of authority. In other words, they don't, it's not a, an entirely symmetrical relationship, is it? And so I suppose you know, the other reading of someone like Duchamp, rightly or wrongly, would be that you know, Duchamp is puncturing that trust, but in the name of puncturing that authority. In other words, it's, you know, it's an undermining of the artist as this uh, um, uh, elevated figure, I mean, the, the loss of the, ha the halo in uh, Baudelaire's terms. And I suppose it, it's the problem I was with that question of myth as well, and that kind of modernist idea of myth as well. It's still relies upon the idea that somebody has the authority to create the myth, which then others can happily inhabit, as it were, which seems to me a, a potentially quite politically scary notion. The you, yeah. But they can be You get the last um, word. <laughs> but brief. That's portentous. Um, Always I'm, portentous. Yeah. I'm amazed by this monothematic mania. So we're given the word hope. So we play around with hope for a bit, and then we think, well, earlier we're encountering difficulties with hope. So let's try trust. <laughs> Um, or why don't we try narrative? Or we haven't really tried analysis, which actually does seem to me to be another. We need a conceptual toolkit. And it seems to me the art of thinking is partly to be able to count, to say I'm talking about four concepts rather than one, or five concepts rather than sure. one. If you can't enumerate what the aspects are that you're talking about, how can you achieve change, the big US word, sure. change, change, change? And it, it hasn't got to be a kind of hope of the soul song, you know, the change is going to come. It's got to be, we're, and this actually relates to the past and to the future, that we think we know from certain things that we've learned from the past that there are these things involved. It may not be an adequate toolkit. Let's test it out, and as we test it out, let's add to the toolkit. And let's just keep hoping on the basis of these various traditions. I mean, just to give one last example, I think. It's very interesting to take it out. The way in which Winton Masanis is trying to, you know, re-establish the whole history of jazz. That's great. Yeah. Not as history, but as a life. Living practice. And, and from yeah. time to time, Masanis steps aside and says, "But this whole society is shit." And we can't yeah. just talk about hip hop as though it's wonderful, but it's sexist and it's violent. Yeah. So you see, there are an artist who's both recreating that tradition, trying to take it into the future, and occasionally stepping inside and saying, we've also got to have an analysis of the society in which we are, and certain things are wrong with it. So that's the more of the So my final comment was, is 
let's be multi-thematic rather than monophonetic. Uh, well, you have to talk to your organizer about this. This sounds like a very just, good idea to me. I just have a suggestion, me. faith, hope, and charity. That's your one. But my comment to you about this, and as I said, this may be a, a deformation professionnelle, is that I think the error you could make is by assuming that what we need in order to have change now is to have a program. And I think the kinds of change we're going through uh, have maybe a kind of social and technological program that people like us are not too in touch with, but are felt very strongly by people who have had bad experience in the, the real world, particularly young people. And so my quarrel with you, which we're not going to sort out now, is whether we could have a more social view of social democracy rather than a program. Now, I mean, anyhow, I think that's, a, that's an issue that really uh, is, is worth talking about in another context. But I think that's what we're living now which is a generation of people who, to come back to your theme, don't really have to know what they're doing in order to have a kind of ontological hope. And to me, that's a good thing. And to you, it's not. So we should argue it. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that moment of consensus, I think I want to address. Um, it's my great pleasure to thank you. Oh, well, thank you.